0: a story about a Michigan man named Howard Kirby who did something pretty extraordinary. Let me tell you about him. He purchased a used couch, an ottoman, from a thrift store, and after a couple of weeks he wondered why there was a hard spot on the ottoman. And so his daughter-in-law opened it up and she found a box inside the ottoman and it contained over $43,000 in cold cash. Anybody be checking their furniture this afternoon when you get home? Just wondering? Well, Kirby isn't well off financially and certainly could use the money. A lawyer told him that he had no legal obligation uh, to give the money to the previous owner. But Kirby decided it was not right for him to hold on to the money. So he asked the thrift store for the previous owner's contact information, got in touch with them, and told them about the money. Well, the previous owner said that the furniture belonged to her grandfather, who was extremely frugal and only used cash. Apparently, he hid the money in the furniture and never told anybody. Now, to clarify, uh, you To keep something you find is not directly addressed in the Bible, okay? That's kind of a gray area, so I'm not going to get into all that. But I I am going to focus on this man's incredible honor and generosity, which is undeniable. You say, well, why would he do such a thing? Well, here's what he said. As a born-again Christian, I want to do what Christ would want me to do. And I think that's what he would want me to do. He went on to say, I've had so much peace, so much joy, because I did do it, that $43,000 could never buy that much joy or peace or happiness. Interestingly, Kirby wasn't seeking a reward or trying to get attention, but people have stood up and noticed. Volunteers are going to give him a badly needed roof for his house. Someone set up a GoFundMe page, and over $6,000 has already been raised. And he's received just a great outpouring of messages of support and people saying that his act has inspired them to do good as well. Howard Kirby rightly understood that we should live like Jesus. That's our standard, right? His righteousness. And church, when we do, we stand out in the world and people will notice As we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount, covered from Matthew 5 to 7, we come to the key point, the main idea, the thesis statement of the whole sermon. And it's found in verse 20. It says, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So following Christ is about developing and displaying godly conduct. And it is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as we do, church, it stands out in the world and people notice. To recap so far in our series, we've spent several weeks on what are called the Beatitudes, which serve as the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, the Beatitudes identify characteristics of Followers of Christ, like they are meek and they're merciful and so forth. And Jesus also attaches to them various blessings that they will receive. These beatitudes give us some of the key themes that are going to appear in the Sermon on the Mount. Which picks up really in the the body of the sermon, starts in our passage here today. So to give you the big picture, the body of the Sermon on the Mount goes from chapter 5, verse 17 all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, and then the rest of chapter 7 is the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus uh, urges his listeners to respond to what has been taught to them, okay? So today's passage, again, is incredibly important because it is the main point of the entire sermon. Now, there's several steps to get to this main point in our passage. We're going to see that Jesus teaches that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. We'll see what that means. Really important topic. The Old Testament, he also says, has permanent sense of authority and relevance for the life of his disciples. Therefore, we are to live it out. And as we do live this out, our righteousness will exceed that even of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So please turn to Matthew chapter 5 and pick up with me in verse 17. If you're not already there, page 810 if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you. So the first point found in verse 17 is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Notice what he says there. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So to start off, when Jesus refers to the law or the prophets, that's a shorthand way of referring to the whole Old Testament, right? The law was the first five books that Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, and so forth. It covers the beginning of the world and God calling Israel to be his nation in the Old Covenant, right? The prophets is the rest of the Old Testament. And they often focused on calling the nation of Israel back to that original covenant. Okay? So the law, when Jesus says the law and the prophets, he's speaking of the entire Old Testament. Everybody clear on that? Interestingly, if you look ahead to Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus says, "...so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets." This is another example we saw this last week of what people call a bracket. It's a beginning and an end point. In other words, this whole section, this body of the Sermon on the Mount, deals with how Jesus is going to relate to the entire Old Testament. This is very important because people have a lot of questions. How is Jesus coming along, being the Messiah? How is he going to relate to the Old Testament? And how do his followers then live out the Old Testament in light of who Jesus is? The Old Testament is quite a large part of our Bible, isn't it, right? People have a lot of questions. Well, then how does this apply to us? Jesus really helps us in what he teaches here today. And he says that he did not come to abolish the Old Testament. He did not come to end the Old Testament. Instead of abolishing it, Jesus says he comes to fulfill the Old Testament. You say, well, what does that mean? It means he fulfills the Old Testament in a number of ways. The the ESV Study Bible has a real helpful note in their Bible. It says, quote, Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament and that it all points to him, not only in its specific predictions of a Messiah, but also in its sacrificial system, which look forward to his great sacrifice of himself. And many events in the history of Israel which foreshadowed his life as God's true son. In the laws which only he perfectly obeyed. And in the wisdom literature which sets forth a behavioral pattern that his life exemplified. So church, Jesus didn't come out of the blue, you know, no strings attached. But no, he fulfilled these predictions about the coming Messiah that are found in the Old Testament. He fulfills the sacrificial system as that perfect and final substitute for sin. He fulfilled many events in the life of Israel. For example, Matthew talks a little bit earlier in Matthew 2 how uh, Israel was called God's Son in the sense that it was the heir of salvation, right? Jesus comes along and he is the perfect eternal Son of God. Adam was tempted by Satan and we know what happened to him, right? He fell into sin. Jesus goes out into the desert and he is tempted by Satan and he resists the temptation, right? So in all these different ways of the Old Testament, whether it's these predictions or whether it's uh, kind of these themes and so forth, Jesus comes along and he brings it all together and he fulfills it. Matthew has already pointed out seven times in the first few chapters this Old Testament reference, so and so, Jesus fulfills that. This Old Testament reference, Jesus fulfills that part of it, okay? So Jesus points, excuse me, the Old Testament points to the Messiah, and Jesus comes along and says, look, I fulfill all of these predictions and themes. Remember what he said in John five thirty-nine. He told the religious leaders, you search the, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about who? Me. After his resurrection, remember Jesus' road on the road to the Emmaus, the road with the disciples, he said, he did a Bible study with them, and he said in Luke 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So, the Old Testament, Jesus was not abolishing. He doesn't oppose it. He fulfills it, though. And this is important, church. This means that the Old Testament now must be interpreted according to what Jesus has done and what Jesus teaches. We don't view the Old Testament as if nothing has changed, right? It's not as if it is exactly the same now that Jesus has come. One writer puts it well. He says, quote, "...the Old Testament law is not to be abandoned. Indeed, it must continue to be taught," Matthew 5, 19, "...but interpreted and applied in light of its fulfillment by Christ." In other words, it no longer stands as the ultimate standard for God's people, but must always be viewed through the lens of Jesus' ministry and teaching. Does that make sense? Jesus is the full and the final meaning of the Old Testament. So therefore, there are parts of the Old Testament that are no longer applicable to us, such as I mentioned before, Jesus has fulfilled the temple And the sacrificial system because he's the final sacrifice. There's no longer a need for the dietary laws that separated the Jews from the Gentiles because now Jews and Gentiles are both united in Christ. But other portions of the Old Testament are applicable in this fulfillment of Christ. But even there, Jesus transforms them, as we're going to see next week when Jesus comes to the topic of murder and adultery, right? We're going to see how he transforms them as well. So church, we can't know the, this is really important that we know the fullness of what Christ has taught and the fulfillment that he brings. Not every single answer will be given to us, but that principle remains that the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, it's incomplete so to speak, until Jesus comes along and he fulfills it. Moving on to the second point that Jesus makes, he talks about the permanence of the Old Testament. Verse 18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So the Old Testament is permanent. Yes, it needs to be interpreted along what Jesus has taught, but it is permanent. What does he say there? One day... Heaven and earth are going to pass away. Heaven and earth are going to pass away. All of it, right? Everything in this world is going to pass away. But the Old Testament, until that time comes, will remain. It is permanent. It has lasting authority and relevance. Jesus, to make his point, he, he, he notes how even an iota will not pass away. You know what an iota is? It was the smallest letter of the Greek alphabet, which was the the language of the New Testament. There's an image right there. There's an uppercase and a lowercase, right? That's an iota. Just this little letter, right? He also mentions a dot. Even a dot won't pass away. It literally means a horn. It's how, with just a stroke of a pen, you can make different letters. There's another... the. Fourth from the top there. Oh, look at that. We got the telestrator going on. That is cool. That's the Hebrew alphabet. The first one up top is the D sound, Dalet. You see the one of the third there? That's the race. Don't those letters look almost identical? So that little just whoop on the top makes it a D instead of an R. Jesus said even that little stroke of the pen will not pass away until he comes back. It has lasting relevance, lasting significance. Jesus has an incredibly high view of the Old Testament. It's all inspired, true, and authoritative, and will be permanently present in the life of his followers until the end of the world. Before moving on, though, I just want to point out Matthew 24. This is interesting. When Jesus speaks about his coming in verse 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Did you catch the difference? When Jesus comes back, the the, the Old Testament will pass away, but Jesus says, my words will never pass away because he is greater than the Old Testament because he is God himself. And his words will never pass away. So then Jesus gives in verse 19 an application of the permanence of the Old Testament. Verse 19, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So since the Old Testament is permanent, we shouldn't relax its commandments. If we relax its commandments, Jesus says that we will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, that's what Jesus has brought into this world, right? This kingdom of salvation, peace with God, and he's going to culminate it one day when he returns. If, if, if we are relaxing these commandments, we are least in the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we will be in heaven when he returns, but we'll be least. Say, so What is he getting at there? I think what he's talking about is that over and over in scripture, you see this idea of rewards, where God's people are rewarded based on their faithfulness to him. And so Jesus is saying, yes, you will be in heaven, but if you've totally minimized this foundational element, the Old Testament, you will be in heaven, but you will be not one of the greatest. That kind of hits home, doesn't it, about the significance of the Old Testament. So instead of relaxing it, as he says there, we should teach it and we should do it, right? Again, we're saying, All of the Old Testament is interpreted now in light of who Jesus is and what he does. But we shouldn't neglect it as part of our Christian life. Unfortunately, sometimes this happens, though, where Christians love the New Testament. But the Old Testament gets kind of neglected in their lives. Jesus wants us to know and live out the Old Testament in light of him. And actually, he's going to spend quite a bit of time doing this. All the way through the rest, like I said, all the way through chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus is going to be talking about this. Starting next week, Jesus is going to talk about six different misinterpretations of the Old Testament that was prevalent at the time and how we should understand them now in light of who Jesus is. He begins by dealing with murder and adultery and shows how there's a lot more that is going on with those commands now that he has come along than what was being taught by the religious leaders. Jesus goes to the heart, as we're going to see. So church, we can't know the fullness of our salvation without knowing the Old Testament. We learn the beginning of the story, the foundation for everything, who God is, what's gone wrong with our world, what is the hope for the future. Otherwise, you know what, it's like saying, I'm going to watch a movie trilogy, and I'm going to start with the third movie. Now, you can get something out of that movie, right? You can enjoy it and so forth, but how much better would it be if you saw the first two, right? So I think this is what we need with the Old Testament to really give us this foundation of the story and who God is and how we're to live this out. Jesus really stresses this. Now we come to that final point of our passage. And again, this is the main point of the whole Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus is going to go through. He says, the main point is the necessity of greater righteousness. Verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you guys hear that? Our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees or we will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Wow! That's quite a statement, isn't it? There's a lot there. Let's start with the scribes and the Pharisees. Who were they? The scribes were the professional interpreters of the Old Testament. One writer says about them, They normally began their training as children and continued their studies until formal ordination at age 40. The scribes were greatly respected by most Jews of the day. The Pharisees were a sect within Judaism, right? Known for their meticulous devotion to the Old Testament. So both groups were esteemed people, leaders of their day. They were separate, but there was often overlap between them. So Jesus says that his followers were supposed to have a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. What does he mean when he says we're to be more righteous? Well, we mentioned a couple weeks ago when we are talking about blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Remember we talked about that? We talked about how righteousness is a broad term. Sometimes it refers to the righteousness that we're given as a result of believing in Christ, what people call imputed righteousness. We're given that perfect righteousness of Christ where when God sees us now on Judgment Day, he's going to see the perfect righteousness of Christ. Amen for that, right? Because... We don't have that in and of ourselves. And Paul often speaks about that imputed righteousness, what we're given. He says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake Christ, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But righteousness can also refer to practical righteousness, our conduct, our godly character and so forth that we are to develop and we are to display as followers of Christ. That is how Matthew is using it. He's not talking about how God sees us on Judgment Day. He's talking about how we're to hunger and thirst for righteousness now. We are to become righteous like the righteousness that we will be seen with on Judgment Day. Does that make sense? God's going to see us as righteous on Judgment Day, but we are to start growing more and more like what God is going to see us on Judgment Day. So here's that big question. All right, Jesus, did you really mean this? Are righteousness is supposed to exceed these people? I don't think Jesus was given a trick question. The answer is yes. Yes. The average disciple of Christ should be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. Let me give you three reasons I would say why. First, you know Christ who makes sense of the Old Testament. As we just saw, Jesus is the key to understand the Old Testament. It is incomplete without Christ to make sense of it all, right? Jesus brings it all together. 2 Corinthians one twenty says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. So now that we know Christ, we can go back and understand the fullness of the Old Testament. Amen. The second thing is, is that you have a new heart. This is supernatural stuff. The Old Testament promises that one day in the future, God was going to give his people a new heart to change a heart of stone and to give them a heart of flesh. Are you listening out there? One that hungers and thirsts for righteousness' sake. And so when we believe in Christ, he gives you a new heart God doesn't want just external righteousness. He wants internal righteousness. We're going to see in the coming weeks that yeah, the scribes and Pharisees were very good at outward righteousness but not inward righteousness. And there's a huge difference because God cares what goes on in our hearts first and foremost. And He gives you a new heart. And the third thing is He gives you the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, 27 promised, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So God, now in the new covenant, gives the Holy Spirit to the followers of Christ to indwell you. And so that Holy Spirit produces godliness from within. What Galatians 5 calls what? The fruit of the Spirit. It's not you doing all that by yourself. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace. The Spirit convicts you of sin, right? So that you'll turn from it. The Spirit assures you that you're a child of God and that you matter immensely to God. And so you don't have to run yourself ragged trying to add up more good than bad and hope that God's pleased with you and walk around in this sense of dread and fear that you're going to blow it perhaps one day and it's all going to come crashing down and you're not going to go to heaven. No, that's not what the Spirit does. He assures you that you know Christ and you have peace with God. Our need for greater righteousness is not self-help. It's not try better. It's about letting God's promises and power work in and through your life. And when that happens, yes, the righteousness of God's people will surpass those of the scribes and Pharisees. One writer said, Jesus is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game, but about a different level or concept of righteousness altogether. I was thinking about it this week, the Apostle Paul, isn't he a wonderful illustration of this? Prior to knowing Christ, what was Paul? He was a Pharisee, wasn't he? He was a devout Pharisee, incredibly zealous, persecuting the church, trying to live out all of those things to the utmost degree, right? He thought he was righteous. That's how he saw himself. But then he realized when he came to know Christ that his righteousness was external. It was misguided. But when he realized Christ, or he knew Christ, all that pursuit of righteousness was actually a pursuit of self-righteousness. And that it was worthless. He needed true righteousness that came as a gift by believing in Christ. And then once he came to know Christ, did he finish? Did he say, okay, I've come to know Christ. I'm done. I can just live however I want to. I know I'm going to heaven. That wasn't his attitude at all, was it? It was the exact opposite. He had this burning passion and zeal to become more and more like Christ. That practical righteousness that we were talking about. He says in Philippians 3, 13-14, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So church, let me ask you, have you realized that you cannot attain righteousness on your own? If Paul could not attain it, then you're not going to attain it? Righteousness comes through Christ alone when we ask him to forgive us our sins and to trust Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Has that happened in your life? where you've counted on the righteousness, that foundation of Christ and Christ alone. And once that has happened, you've believed in him, been given that imputed righteousness. Do we have that same passion that we saw in Paul? That passion to start molding and shaping our lives to see what we find in the Old Testament, I mean in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, and to live our lives, transformed by the power of the gospel, to know the old and the new, and how Jesus transforms and renews all these things and renews his people so that we can live out what we find in the Old covenant, now that Jesus has fulfilled it, and live out all of the things that He says. That's what Christ has called his people to do. This is the main point of the Sermon on the Mount. He wants our righteousness to shine mightily in this world. Come back next week as Jesus discusses some of these key areas, again, where he fulfills the Old Testament. And applies this in our lives. When he talks about, you shall not murder, okay, I have something else to add to this. What goes on in your heart maybe when you don't kill somebody but you're angry? What goes on in your heart maybe when you don't commit adultery outwardly but there's lust in your heart? Jesus is digging deeper and deeper because he wants to mold and shape his people to be a mighty reflection of who he is.